Welcome again to the Brentwood Baptist Life Group Leader Podcast. We have a big chunk of text this week, Exodus 7 through Exodus 10, and it's the 11 plagues, if you count the first one, that we're going to walk through is going to be the one true God of Israel versus the many gods, the pantheon of gods in Egypt, in the anticipation of evacuation. You are listening to the Brentwood Baptist Church Life Group Leader Podcast, a resource to equip and encourage group leaders on their journey toward being disciples and making disciples through life groups. Because the text this week is such a huge chunk of text, and again, the teaching pastors are only going to be focused on Exodus 7, 1 through 7, but the background text for this is Exodus chapter 7 through chapter 10. So that's a, that's a lot of... That's a lot of data happening. So what I thought I could do that may be most helpful is to continue to reiterate the necessity of the cosmic battle, that this is not God and Moses, this is not Moses versus Pharaoh. In some ways, the deliverance, although it is the highlight of the story and the highlight of much of the faith, I mean, sort of like the key event in the Hebrew Bible, but in some ways it's secondary to this one true God of Israel versus all the many, many gods of Egypt and demonstrating himself against the singular world power, the height of humanity, uh, that he's sovereign, that he's in control and that nothing happens outside of his sovereign will. So we got to keep that cosmic battle in front of our people's minds. And to do that, I wanted to walk through what each plague does in relation to the Egyptian God that it's about. So I'm going to be pulling from two sources here. One is gotquestions.org, gotquestions.org in the search string that I put in there. Well, I don't even remember what I actually typed, but here's the question that came out. What was the meaning and purpose of the 10 plagues of Egypt? So that's going to give us a baseline for which deity uh, the particular plague was aimed at. And then I'm using good old Encyclopedia Britannica online and it's uh, Egyptian gods and goddesses. It's just a list of Egyptian god and goddesses. So I thought we could walk through these and and say which one's aimed at which one. Um, Maybe it can be some backdrop. I don't know. Maybe you want to hone in on one particular plague with your groups. Uh, I don't know. It's totally up to you, but at least I'll do some of this legwork for you, and I'll have links to these in the show notes so you can get to them yourself online. I guess the first plague really wasn't a plague at all. It was when they throw the staff down and it becomes a serpent and the magicians mimic that or imitate that is the, is the Hebrew language there. Um, and then Aaron's staff snake snake that was a staff eats all the other snakes. And it, it is weird. So I guess here's the one apologetics thing. Uh, well, two apologetics things. Cause we have the weird cattle showing back up. Um, but it's strange that these magicians can mimic the supernatural events of of, God, of Yahweh here. So how are we to understand that? And I think your groups, if they're like most groups and like I was before I dug into it, um, it's weird. It's, it's strange to think that they can mimic the supernatural miracles of, of the one true God. So I think with a little bit of context and the way this is intended to be understood is that these magicians are mimicking a piece of it. So I want to walk through this magician duplication 
uh, with the help of the New American Commentary on Exodus. So they they offer four considerations to understand how the magicians were doing the same acts as God was when gods were supernatural. So first, Moses and Aaron were not magicians. What God did through them was genuine, turning a piece of wood into an animal. The Egyptians, on the other hand, were magicians, and the simplest reading of the text is one that assumes they imitated by magical deception what Aaron had done by divine power. Uh, So, in other words, because Pharaoh doesn't want to let the people go, because Pharaoh doesn't believe in the one true God of Israel, if these magicians were able to um, do some sleight of hand or some illusion such that they had a staff and um, then turned it into a snake, very much like pulling a rabbit out of a hat sort of thing, then Pharaoh was going to be predisposed to believe that and to go with his magician. So it wasn't as if they needed to match one for one what the Lord was doing. They just needed to sufficiently demonstrate that they could do something like it so that Pharaoh would deny the one true God of Israel. Second, the, the text states that the magicians accomplished their imitation by their secret arts. The term there is trickery rather than by any sort of supernatural means or with the help of Satan or any other non-worldly mechanism. So in other words, it was sleight of hand, illusion sort of stuff. The same thing that we would consider magic now. Third, the end of verse 12 states that Aaron's staff swallowed theirs, a performance they could not and apparently did not even try to duplicate. They were at that point trumped because a substitution trick is nothing compared to causing one snake to eat a group of other snakes. So in other words, when we see imitation, our minds may go to one for one. Whatever Moses and Aaron did, so likewise did these magicians do. But that's not necessarily the case. All they wanted to do was demonstrate that they could do something like it. So for instance, when the Nile turns to blood, whether that means literally blood or whether it means a deep red pollutedness that God causes from the Nile, it's not as if the magicians wipe all that out the Nile flows clear again and then they make it red again what they probably did was take a puddle and or just some small little stream or such thing some trickle of water and they turned that red through whatever mechanisms they might have had so it wasn't as if they were doing one for one what the Lord was doing they were instead demonstrating that they could do some minuscule percentage Um, mimic of what the Lord was doing in order to give Pharaoh justification for rejecting the Lord. And then fourth, it was God's purpose to start small. This pre-plague miraculous portent was intentionally a simple, small-scale miracle to test the will of Pharaoh and to show Moses and Aaron what they were up against. Uh, So in other words, uh, this one isn't expected to be as difficult they could use easy sleight of hand like i say the one with the nile turning red would have been uh, more impressive but again note just like our third point here that just like the snakes of the magicians did not eat the snakes of moses and aaron likewise they did not try to get rid of the bloodness of the nile river instead they just took a little puddle on the side and turned it red and that was likely sufficient for what pharaoh wanted while we're at it we may as well go ahead and handle the other Uh, apologetic issue is that i've heard skeptics before and read skeptics before who talk about the promise of killing the firstborn in egypt including the cattle and the livestock and they say wait a minute the fifth plague was death to all the livestock all the animals are dead where these animals come from and then they try to say well the bible has contradictions and the like so if we were to read it even remotely carefully 
what we would see is that chapter 9, verse 3 says, Then the Lord's hand will bring a severe plague against your livestock in the field, the horses, donkeys, camels, herds, and flocks. So we have a lot of different answers for this. One answer is to say, look, Moses is clear which livestock died, the ones in the field. I mean, there's no reason to assume that every single animal owned by the Egyptians, whether it be the horses that pulled the chariots in the actual parting of the Red Sea event, or whether it um, be just cattle of some sort, that they were all necessarily out in the field when this plague hit. Um, There's probably some subset of them out there, so that plenty were still living. Even though it says all died, um, so for instance in verse 6 there of chapter 9, the Lord did this the next day, and all the Egyptian livestock died. Well, that all always has a referent. Which all? All the ones living in the field. And so we can't just take random alls. Uh, we got to be careful with that as we read the Bible. And here's an opportunity to help your people read the Bible. Every all is modifying something, right? Uh, the example I like to use is if we were in our, or let's just say you're in your rooms or in your house with your group, and you say something like, hey, grab all these chairs and let's go to the other room. Then, then your people are going to grab the chairs in that room and take them. So if you were just to say, hey, get all chairs, they're not going to go to your neighbor's house and start taking chairs. They're not going to go to rooms on the other side of your campus and start taking chairs. They understand in context that you mean all the chairs in their room. So any all that we see in the Bible, we have to take with reference to what is modifying in the context. So here, which all livestock? It would be the livestock in the field that verse 3 is talking about. But we have other answers. Let's say it does mean all. Let's, let's, meet, let's assume it means that every single livestock of the Egyptians dropped dead, that they all happened to be in the field or some such thing. Well, there's at least seven days likely between each of these plagues, minimally. Um, and, and I justify that with this. It opens up with there being seven days on the first plague. In an ancient Near Eastern literature, oftentimes the time stamp for patterns is put at the beginning of a story and not repeated again. So I think it's safe culturally with the way they wrote to assume that that pattern moves forth in the rest of the plagues. So they had time between the fifth and the tenth plagues to go get more cattle. Uh, they could have brought them in from the outside. Uh, but but they, they had options to get other livestock if they so needed it. So it's just not, I mean, these so-called contradictions in the Bible are people just not taking seriously the text. And if we would just read the text, let it stand at let it stand as it is, it almost always, and I say almost always just because I haven't looked at every single one, but I've looked at enough of them to assume that, um, or to know, better stated, that the Bible defends itself very well. That what seems like contradictions to us, usually if a little bit of thought is put in, then um, and a little bit of cultural understanding has gotten, a little bit of historical context has gotten, these so-called contradictions just aren't that big of a deal, and they're not contradictions at all. What they are is contemporary Western eyes trying to read ancient Near Eastern texts, which um, which doesn't always go well if we don't do the heavy lifting of getting to what the original audience would have been thinking and hearing. All right, so those are the two apologetic issues that we have, I think, or at least the most severe ones, is these magicians were mimicking only in part, in a minuscule part, and secondarily were doing it by sleight of hands and tricks and could not overcome the um, or undo the miracles of God because through Moses and Aaron, supernatural events were happening, whereas through the magicians and their trickery, only sleight of hand was happening. 
Likewise, I would argue that only the livestock in the field died, so there is just no issue with uh, Pharaoh having horses when they're chasing the Israelites towards the uh, Red Sea. All right, so now on to the bulk of what we want to talk about today. And that is to say, which God was at stake in each of these plagues? So I'm probably going to mess up some of these names, but um, I looked up a lot of them, but still it can be difficult. And so this comes from, and again, you'll find this in the show notes, the gotquestions.org, the 10 plagues of Egypt. So the first plague, turning the Nile to blood, was a judgment against Apis, A-P-I-S, the god of the Nile, Isis, goddess of the Nile, and Knum, guardian of the Nile. And also the Nile was believed to be the bloodstream of Osiris, who was reborn each year when the river flooded. And so the Nile created such rich, fertile soil, was the life source for this nation and part of why they came to dominance. So for the first plague to is to take that and pollute it to the point where they couldn't uh, get use the water out of it anymore. And they had to dig wells to go underneath and get the, um, the, the water deeper down is a pretty powerful opening statement against the gods of the land because it would have been one of the key gods of the land. So we talked there about Apis, or Apis, sorry, uh, Isis and Knum, and then Osiris. So Apis, Isis, Knum, and Osiris. So now I wanted to walk you through quickly from Britannica what these gods were about. So Osiris, one of Egypt's most important deities, was god of the underworld. So he's reborn each year as the Nile floods, um, and they rely on their agricultural fertility. According to the myth, Osiris was a king of Egypt who was murdered and dismembered by his brother Seth. His wife, Isis, reassembled his body and resurrected him, allowing them to conceive a son, the god Horus. He was represented as a mummified king wearing wrappings that left only the green skin of his face and hands exposed. So remember, Isis is the goddess of the Nile. Uh, So she can't be tied to a specific town. So there are no certain mentions of her in the earliest Egyptian literature. Over time, she grew importance, becoming the most important goddess in the pantheon as the devoted wife who resurrected Osiris, we just heard about. As the wife of the god of the underworld, Isis was also one of the main deities concerned with rites for the dead. Along with her sister, Nephthys, Isis acted as a divine mourner, and her maternal care was often depicted as extending to the dead in the underworld. Isis was one of the last of the ancient Egyptian gods to still be worshipped. In the Greco-Roman period, she was identified with the Greek goddess Aphrodite, and her cult spread as far as as far west as Great Britain and as far east as Afghanistan. The first plague now to blood was a judgment against a handful of gods, the most significant of which were Isis and Osiris. Second plague was against Heket, which is the goddess of birth and depicted by a frog. So when all these frogs show up, certainly anyone in, in Egypt would have understood what that was about. The third plague, which are the gnats, could have been mosquitoes, flies, I don't know, something in that gnat family, was a judgment on Set, the god of the desert. In my understanding, this is the same as Seth, so sometimes you see it S-E-T, S-E-T-H, but was the god of chaos, violence, deserts, and storms. In the Osiris myth, he is the murderer of Osiris. In some versions of the myth, he tricks Osiris into laying down in a coffin and then seals it shut. It it goes on, doesn't really elaborate on how he was worshipped or anything. That would be nice to know. But it elaborates instead on the fact that he was often, um, you don't know what animal head he has. And so he's something with a long snout. It often looks like a dog um, 
or some kind of jackal or some sort of thing. But in any case, this is the God of chaos, violence, deserts, and storms. And the Lord sends these gnats against Egypt, which would have recognized this as a judgment against their desert god. The flies of the fourth plague would have been aimed at the god Uitkit. I, ho- I hope is how you say it, or at least pretty close to how you say it. But this would be a deity whose head was often exhibited as a fly. So his um, his head would have looked like a fly. And that obviously would have demonstrated Yahweh, the one true God of Israel's attack on that God. I think it was, don't quote me on this one, because I can't really find support for it as I just looked for longer than I should have. Uh, but a god of the earth, essentially, um, has to deal with the earth and this creation. All right. Fifth plague was the death of the livestock, and it was a judgment primarily on the goddess Hathor, or Hathor, H-A-T-H-O-R, and then the god um, Apis, A-P-I-S, again, I think I mentioned above. But both were depicted as cattle, and of course, cattle in ancient times was so closely related to life, uh, we see this in the Hindu uh, tradition that the cow is revered. Milk is considered the nurturing uh, truth of, of birth and life. So the the cow was really elevated um, on a lot of different levels in a lot of these ancient cultures. So for God to then attack the livestock of the Egyptians was to demonstrate his sovereignty over them and then tied to that over life. Uh, so this was this was a really big one. It kind of pops up in the middle. We can sort of just look at it in terms of economics while they lost their cows and bulls and horses and so forth. But really, it was attack on their close ties of the goddess Hathor to life and um, and, and new birth. To go in a little more detail on the guard on the goddess Hathor, uh, usually depicted as a cow, as a woman with the head of a cow or as a woman with at least cow's ears. Uh, Hathor embodied motherhood and fertility, and it was believed that she protected women in childbirth. She also had an important uh, funerary aspect, being known as the Lady of the West, because the tombs were generally built on the west bank of the Nile. Uh, So again, when God attacks these livestock, God is making a broader point to the Egyptian people, and the Pharaoh in particular, that I am the God of birth, I am the God of life, I am the God of nurture, and on and on it could go. The sixth plague was over a set of gods, Sekhmet, Sunu, and Isis. And we already talked about Isis, the the wife of Osiris, who was the god of the underworld. Uh, this one, I think, is in large part a statement against the religious leaders, because this is where Moses brings out that extra point, that now the magicians are covered in boils and they can't get rid of them. And, and they just sort of, like, I guess, is a kind of give up moment here. Uh, probably should have been sooner, but nevertheless, here it was. The seventh plague attacked the sky goddess Newt, so it could also be pronounced Nuit, but it's the goddess of the sky, often depicted as a woman arched over the earth, and particularly the earth god, which was Geb, and this was her brother. So you have uh, Nuit, the sky goddess, and Geb, the earth god, and they are brother and sister. Uh, Rain does not carry the image of fertility in Egyptian religion, and that's going to be different than the Canaanites, who very much did talk about it that way uh the useful water is from the nile so it shows there again go back to the earlier plague but the egyptians dependence was upon the nile more so than upon the rain so they didn't revere the rain insofar as they revealed uh revered the nile river so it says as the goddess of the sky knew it swallowed the sun in the evening 
and gave birth to it again in the morning. In a minute, we're going to meet the God Ra, who was the creator God, and we'll see his role in creation. Really an incredible, incredible understanding of creation. The eighth plague, which was locusts, was again an attack on Nuit, but also Osiris, so God of the underworld again, and Set. It's interesting to note how Moses is so specific in that the later crops didn't suffer death here. And again and again and again, the Bible presents itself as a history book. I mean, just just think back to what I've already told you and read some of the backstory, really brief backstory of these gods and goddesses of Egypt. And these do not read. I mean, they, they were worshipped. but They were given all these separate images. They will contradict with one another. They'll cross over with one another. Um, they're sort of generic myth stories. I mean, just got to say myth doesn't mean it has to be false necessarily, but they read that way. Whereas Moses is writing this text and saying, well, the later crops, we know those weren't destroyed. Uh, He's just so specific and so basic and so simple in his presentation. It really speaks to the veracity of what he's writing. So the ninth plague is a a big one, uh, the darkness. And it was aimed at the sun god Ra, often looks like R-E, but pronounced Ra, who was symbolized by Pharaoh himself. For three days, the land of Egypt was smothered with an unearthly darkness, but the homes of the Israelites had light. And so I'll walk you through a little bit of my understanding of Ra's creation. And this is why, again, the the Hebrew Bible is just so radical. And the Judeo-Christian and Islamic, in this sense, faiths are just so unbelievably radical, is that there is just a, a single God, just a single creator God, monotheism. And it's so rare and obscure in in what we know of these ancient cultures and ancient texts. So one of several deities associated with the sun, the god Ra, was usually represented with a human body and the head of a hawk. It was believed that he sailed across the sky in a boat each day and then made a passage through the underworld each night, during which he would have to defeat the snake god Apophis in order to uh, rise again, so to allow the sun to rise again. Ra's cult was centered in Heliopolis, now a suburb of Cairo. Over time, Ra came to be syncretized with other sun deities, especially Amon. But my understanding of the creation in Egyptian um, Egyptian tradition, religious tradition, is that Ra recreated the earth every single day. So as he sails over and brings the sun up, you know, goes underneath, defeats the snake, and comes back up. It's that he creates an entirely brand new creation that syncs perfectly with the previous set of creation so that we get this continuous, this feel or illusion of continuous flow. And then how radical is it that Moses comes out at the beginning of Genesis 1 and says, in the beginning, God, and God created, and that was it. No pantheon of gods, no no constant daily creation, once for good, here's the universe, there it is, spoken into existence by the one true God of Israel. It is just stunning. And so just like the fifth plague was an attack on um, life, birth, through the death of the livestock, so the ninth plague is attack on creation itself. So Moses and, and God here, uh, the one true God of Israel here, is going after the fundamental understanding of creation held by the Egyptians and by it staying dark is demonstrating to the Egyptians, Ra's not real. I mean, now, of course, they could try to explain it away. Well, he must have lost to the snake three nights in a row or something because it was complete darkness. 
but the sun stays over the Israelites. Light stays over the Israelites. And God is saying to the Egyptian people and to Pharaoh that I am the sovereign God of creation. I am the sovereign God of light and dark. So the 10th plague was the death of the firstborn. And, um, and we often take it as firstborn males, but really the the Hebrew language there doesn't really speak in terms of males. It's a bit ambiguous. It's really just firstborn. Generally, probably would be a better way to understand it. But it's an attack on the goddess of Isis, who was the protector of children. Uh, again, the, the wife of Osiris. Again, a main deity, but uh, was was given maternal care. And, and as I stated earlier, was often depicted as extending to the dead in the underworld. So this is the supreme nurturer. Um, not the life bringer per se, but the life, the life nurturer and the one to protect children. And um, notice that in Exodus, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, per the New American Commentary, that in Exodus was the first time Moses wrote that the nation was called the children of God. And so God is making a point here where he's saying, I'm sovereign over everything, period. And my children will be released. And he's taking the children from uh, from Egypt here. So hopefully that helps in terms of the cosmic battle, the the fight with the Egyptians uh, and their gods and deities. And it should have been clear to any Egyptian uh, that was that was paying any attention, whatever, that the one true God of Israel was the only true God, the most powerful of all these other supposed deities and the one in sovereign control, as he demonstrated 10 times over direct assaults and attacks upon these false deities that the Egyptians worshipped. Um, and you would think after all that, that it would be sufficient to turn, that it would be sufficient to submit and say, uh, I don't, I can't explain it. I don't know it, but I know everything I've been taught Egyptian wise is false. And I'm going to get on board with these children of Israel people. I'm going with them. And yet it doesn't really seem to happen. Now we see Rahab says this later. Uh, we heard what God did in Egypt. We know that, that God's true and those gods are false. Those gods and goddesses are false, but you, you would expect it would happen more here. So there's lots of ways to tie this to the gospel. One is just to say, how long till we turn? How much suffering do we allow ourselves to endure in order before we submit our life and, um, you know, deny ourselves and follow what God would have for us? Uh, how many idols do we put up in our life? It may not be gods and goddesses in the way the Egyptians do it, but look at the gods and goddesses were just representations of physical stuff. Um, I mean, they were in many ways materialists kind of in how they thought about it. I mean, livestock, cows, birth here, that goddess, uh, sun creation here, that God, that what's, what is interesting is that these explanations are not religious in the same way that we talk about the Judeo Christian faith and, um, that, that what the Egyptians were doing and what the ancient Greeks were doing with all of their different gods and goddesses was really a pre-enlightened science it was it was a naturalistic explanation of the world that these i i think it's the same way with the egyptian gods and goddesses i know it's this is, is the case with the greek gods and goddesses they're physical beings just really really powerful ones but these are naturalistic explanations of the world but what we get in the hebrew bible what we get in the pentateuch from moses is a supernatural account of a personal creator God who brings about the universe and creates humanity and seeks relationship with humanity. It is so utterly different and radical from 
what you would find in these other religious systems. So we have to fight that. We, we, we really ought to tie most ancient religion closer to the sciences, so-called naturalistic explanations of phenomenon in the world, than we do what we consider religion and spirituality in modern times. And we as teachers need to paint that picture for our people to give them some boldness to stand up for the uniqueness of the Christian faith, to not feel weird and to not be accused of being uh, part of a superstitious religion or anything like that. And no, we believe in something radically different than what you're trying to connect it to with all of these other faiths and all of these, and all of these other traditions. So fight real hard to keep the cosmic battle in front of the minds of your people. Fight real hard to help them think like supernatural people, like kingdom people. And fight real hard to keep your group saturated with the gospel. Because that's what the Holy Spirit's going to get his hooks into as he deploys people out uh, to disciple those where they live, work, and play. To be strategically on mission to make disciples of all people.